All right, friends, welcome back to the podcast, and this is episode 25. In this episode, I interviewed Pastor Heather Ardry, and she's doing a restart, so to speak, up in Massachusetts, and we talk about uh, a myriad of things. She um, was a chaplain for InterVarsity, and one of the campuses that she served on was Harvard. She was also um, an associate pastor in the Marshall Islands for four years, and now she is doing this restart. Um, and so we talk about what she's doing now, what she's learned, what it's like to pastor with um, a certain level of anxiety, and, and then we also talk about the difference between having a spiritual director and having a mentor. Uh, so anyway, I hope you'll get some, I hope you will be encouraged, inspired, maybe challenged in a few places. And I'm going to put some links in the show notes um, where you can find a spiritual director if that's something you're interested in. Anyway, I really enjoyed talking and connecting with Heather, and I think you will too. tell better stories instead of complaining about it right what if we just start telling the stories and really flood the airwaves with something different Um, yeah thank you so much for inviting me it's um i know we well we connected up back in february in kansas city and then it's just taken forever to get this to be able to connect up with you and yeah so I'm sure lots have happened since you know since February goes through all the summer months fall has launched already so will you just talk a little bit about where you're serving now and your role and um, you know just what you uh, you enjoy about this assignment so I am serving in Lynn Massachusetts at um, the first church of the Nazarene in Lynn um, a, we it's a congregation of about 50 folks uh, that we run about 35 on a Sunday morning. The church um, the church has been here since 1888, and we're meeting in a building that was built in 1880. Um, so well, that's a, fun. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a historic church and a historic building. You know, our our church actually predated the. Nazarene denomination. So um, that's kind of, kind of interesting, but they joined the church when the denomination started in 1907. So were they like a generic holiness church and then they joined? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, That's kind of fun. It is, it is really fun. It's nice to have sort of that piece of history um, as a part of us. And it's a a fairly good sized city, about 92,000 people. We're just north of Boston. Yeah. I always forget that Massachusetts is so close to the coast. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're right. I mean, we're right, you know, down the road from the water. Lynn is known for, um, I didn't learn until I moved here, that uh, it manufactures the marshmallow fluff. Really? Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so if you ever well, get the, the, you know, the little jar of marshmallow fluff on the back, it'll say, made in Lynn, Massachusetts. That's pretty fun. I would, you know, much more rather be known for marshmallow fluff. Yeah, but it's a it's a interesting city. You know, there's lots of people that have 
been sort of born and raised here, never left. Um, very blue collar, um, lots of you know factory work. There's a big GE plant that's still here, even though it's smaller than it used to be. But we also somehow have become sort of the local, one of the local places that a lot of um, drug rehab places. So we've got a couple super houses within walking distance of the church and and also a, a big um, immigrant community. A lot of folks who are, you know, just recently moved to the area, yeah. they'll, they'll settle them in Lynn of all places. Um, right. So my kids, my kids elementary school has 32 countries represented. Oh, wow. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you what's like the biggest, you know, what's the most common group of people that come to your area, but I guess if there's 32 countries. <laughs> yeah. the, the most common <laughs> language group um, is, is Latino, you know, Spanish speaking yeah. from Central and South America and the islands. So it's 60% Spanish speaking as a primary language in our town. I just don't think, I mean, you think that like Florida and Southwest parts of the country, but you don't think of that in Massachusetts. No, but that's, uh, that's where we are. You know, my daughter, my fifth grade daughter has three students that just started school this year that don't speak English at all. They only speak Spanish. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of an interesting makeup because you've got the, you know, the folks that were born and raised here, you've got the immigrant community, you've got the drug recovery community. And then there's also some, some movement towards sort of a gentrification of the, you know, million dollar condos being built and things like that. So it's kind of an interesting uh, mix. Yeah, you've got, you've got the whole spectrum. Now you're the lead pastor, right? I am, I am the lead and only pastor at the church. Did you tell me, is this a restart or you just not really? I think like if you ask the district, I don't think we're classified as a restart. Gotcha. Um, I came in, you know, and within a not very long amount of time, just as I'm getting to know the community and getting to know the church, you know, I've been very upfront with my church and with the board and just saying, you know, regardless of whatever, whatever else we think of ourselves, we are planting here. Right. <laughs> and we, and we need to see ourselves that way. And I, so that's sort of the major shift I'm trying to help the congregation to just own their sort of status as a church plant. Yeah. Um, you have to make that part of the vision if you're going to yeah. move forward. Right. Yeah. I mean, and part of it is, part of it is like, we've always been a diverse church, but it, it has largely been an English speaking, you know, an English speaking white culture church for lack of a better way to say it. And even though it's been diverse, you know, as I've been getting to know the community and as we've been getting to know the community, it's becoming more and more clear to me that, you know, if we're going to engage our community, it needs to include at least Spanish, if not other languages, Right. which also means that, that those other cultural groups need to be in leadership within the church. And so that's, that's some pretty big transitions um, for a historic church, even a, even a smaller one to make you know, God is, God is at work. And even, you know, so I talked with the Hispanic ministries coordinator on our district and, you know, told him sort of my heart for becoming a, a bilingual church um, right. and sharing leadership with a bilingual pastor. And he showed up one Sunday and was like, let's do it. I'm on board. I've been praying and I think this is where God wants us to go. So that's 
encouraging and exciting. And um, the Sunday when he was there, he's like, let's tell your church. And so, you know, we stood up front together and (laughs) We have a retired pastor attending who used to pastor this church back in, I think it was in the 80s. And he's like, pastor, I've got to say something. And he stood up and he said, you know, I I left 20, 25 years ago because I felt like we needed to somehow reach the Spanish speaking community. And I didn't feel like I was the person to do that. And so I left so that God could do that. I was like, thank you so much for sharing. And isn't it amazing that God brought you back just in time? <laughs> right. Oh, how um, wonderful. How affirming. We are starting to feel like that is sort of the direction God is moving us. As I said, it's not necessarily an easy transition. Um, so we're taking our time with it and just, you know, praying for God to bring the right folks along to help. Yeah. Now, how long have you been there? Just over a year. Yeah. Getting things so, moving. Yeah. I am very upfront with them that we're just talking about changes right now. (laughs) We need to talk about changes. We need to talk about what we need to change in what God needs to change in us for those changes to happen. Yeah. And I tell them I'm not in a hurry. This is God's process. Yeah. (laughs) We can, we can, we can pray, we can work, but really in the end, um, (laughs) now where did you come? So where were you before this assignment? Um, my family was living overseas in the Marshall Islands. Yeah, my husband's job had us out there. He's not military, but we were living on a military base. Um, and his, uh-huh. his engineering company had a, a lab group out in the middle of the Marshall Islands. So we were out there for four years. And I was serving as the associate pastor of the only Protestant church on the island. The closest Nazarene church was like 4,000 miles away. You, The only Protestant church allowed women to even be on staff. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was an interdenominational church. So even to be on the church board, one of the questions was, because we're interdenominational, we allow women to, I'm not sure how long they had been doing that. but um, But when I got there, the pastor that was there was very affirming of women in ministry. When he left, they actually, the company that hires the pastors there invited me to be the interim because they knew I was ordained. So I served as the interim for about five months. Um, And then when the new pastor came, he invited me to stay on as the associate. It was a very unique experience. We, I mean, we loved our time out there, but, but knew it was time to come back to the States. I mean, you're separated from everybody and your family. You have yeah. young kids too, right? Yeah, um, eight, eight and ten, eight and ten year olds. So yeah. they were two and five when we left to to yeah. go to the Marshall Islands. So our, my youngest didn't have any memories of living in the U.S. Um, Interesting. Now, did you yeah. grow up in the church then? I did. Um, my dad, when I was in between first grade and second grade, my dad um, was called to be a pastor of a church in New York. So, I mean, we had attended church before then, but as I was going into second grade, my dad became a pastor. Yeah. So I grew up in the church. Um, My parents are actually both ordained. I can remember, um, I have memories of my mom being ordained. And, you know, I wrestled with that when I, when I was, you know, looking into owning my own faith, you know, do I, do I stay in this denomination? Because there's things I love about the church of the Nazarene and there's things that are hard. Right. But I, I decided that 
there would be that same things I love and things that are hard in any denomination. And at least this one, I know what those things are and know a little bit about how to work within it. It sort of had to come to a place where I made an intentional choice to stay because I, you know, switching denominations would have just meant, you know, changing the, the likes and dislikes and having to relearn them. Yeah, and sometimes, in some ways, yeah, going into a different denomination than you were raised, you're, well, I mean, I wasn't raised in the Church of Nazarene either, so there was a huge learning curve on the yes. cultural nuances that you aren't familiar with. So, but yeah, so my, my parents are both ordained and um, grew up uh, going to church and helping serve at the church that my dad was pastoring. Kind of always, there's never known time that, that you didn't know Jesus, or was there a moment when you, just Christ became real to you, that relationship? Yeah, I think, I think Jesus became increasingly real at different pivotal moments. As, you know, as I grew and changed, my relationship with God needed to grow and change as well. So, I mean, I, I grew up going to children's church and Sunday school where they'd ask, you know, raise your hand if you want to, <laughs> if you want to follow Jesus. Right. And, like there was a time when I, I can't remember if it was when I was 12 or 13 and I was walking home from youth group and having a conversation with my sister about faith and about Jesus and about God and, you know, kind of came to this moment of, oh, like it, even if it's real in general, it still has to be real for me for it to matter. And then there was another moment right before my senior year of high school where I was at, at family camp and not paying attention to the guy that was speaking at all <laughs> because that's <laughs> because you don't when you're a teenager yeah. um and and uh and then god sort of tuned me in at a at a moment when he was talking about the church or the churches in the u.s about how churches all over the world were growing and the churches in the u.s are not were not were actually seeing decline and I sort of felt that first pull toward ministry where God said to me in that moment, that's, that's for you. Like, this is for you. I'm like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know? And then there were moments in college as well where I, I really felt like I had to choose between um, living life for myself or am I really going to live for God? Well, while Jesus and God have always been there and always sort of been a part of my story, um, I think it I think my relationship with Jesus certainly has become increasingly real as I've changed and grown. They saw your mom, well, actually saw both your parents get ordained. And so I'm, I'm guessing they're pretty influential in your early call. Yeah, they, they were, but they, they were very, um, even though they were pastors, like my mom grew up in a pastoral family as well. And she didn't want to marry a pastor. She didn't want to be a pastor because she grew up, in a pastoral family. And so I think I had, I had a little bit of that in me as well. Cause you know, I growing up in a pastor's home, you see, and you hear all of the things that you don't always see and hear in the church. Um, even, even though my parents were very good about, you know, trying to keep the hardest parts of that from us, but you still, you still see it and you see the toll it takes on the family and the toll it takes on your parents. And, um, did not set out to be a pastor. I didn't set out to be in ministry. I was going to be a veterinarian. Where did you grow up that you wanted to be a veterinarian? 
I was in New York. I mean, it wasn't the oh, city, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> the foothills of the Catskill Mountains. Um, I was going to be a veterinarian, and then I was going to be a math teacher. That was I went to college as a math as a math major because I was going to be a math teacher. But no, I my parents definitely were influential. They never, you know, they didn't expect me to go into the family business, so to speak. <laughs> right. And it, my mom's dad was also, as I said, he was a pastor, and he actually. You know, he was the one that said to me, if you can do anything else, if you can, if, if you can get away with God letting you do anything else, you should do it. You know, basically just saying, you don't do this unless you have a call because yeah. of the toll it takes. I saw lots of examples that I didn't think I could fill. Just models I didn't think, I was like, that's not me. You know, I, I can't be a, a one-woman show. I can't do it all. I, I don't have that kind of energy. I don't have that kind of gumption. So I, I really thought that wasn't for me. But um, as I said, I was at that camp meeting and felt a very clear calling to ministry. It was very clear that I was called to serve and that I was called to invest in others. And then every time I asked God and asked Jesus for clarity, the only response I ever, you know, like, so what am I going to do? Am I going to be a pastor? Am I going to be a missionary? Am I going to be a youth leader? Um, the only response I ever got was follow me. You know, that's what, that's what I did. I was like, okay, I'll follow you. And so within, you know, a month of being at college, I, God invited me to change my major. And so I changed to a religion major. That was one of those moments of, of God sort of saying, are you going to do this my way? Or are you going to choose your own way? All along the way, I didn't really know. I didn't really know what it was he was inviting me to. So I just tried to follow the next faithful invitation. You know, so I pursued ordination because I didn't really know what else to do. Right. But but I had lots of questions about what my path and calling was all the way through that process, including the day that I was or getting ordained. As he has led, it has it has become more and more clear to me that that he had a reason even for all those questions and all of those, what sometimes felt to me like out of the way paths um, that got me to where I am now. Yeah. So often he just says, here's your next step. That's it. I'm not... I graduated from seminary. I, um, we moved to upstate New York so my husband could go to grad school. So I contacted, you know, I did what I thought I should do. I contacted the district and I'm like, I'm coming. I just graduated seminary, like put me to work. And they're like, we've got nothing for you. I was like, I'll do anything, you know, associate, assistant, I'll plant something. We're moving to a place where there isn't a Nazarene church. I'll plant one there. And they just kept saying, nope, we don't have anything, no resources, nothing. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, what are you doing? You've called us here for my husband to go to school. And um, within a week of him being on campus, um, I had gotten introduced to the InterVarsity staff on campus there. And within six months, I was working on going on staff with InterVarsity as a graduate and faculty chaplain on campus. And I ended up doing that for seven years. Oh, it was, it was fantastic. It That um, has been deeply informative for the way that I pastor now. Right. Um, and I, and I, I really think that serving with InterVarsity for seven years is the only reason I'm a pastor today. Because like I said, those models I had seen for what it could look like didn't fit. Right. And working for InterVarsity taught me a different model and a different approach yeah. to ministry that I thought, you know, I could do this in the church. Right. Um, yeah. What campus were you on? I served at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York for 
uh, four years, and then I served at Harvard in Cambridge when we moved up to the Boston area. Yeah. What uh, what a diverse um, atmosphere to serve, right? Yeah. So university was very influential then in shaping you and especially the yeah. early stages. Uh, so what do you think is your greatest spiritual strength? Like what did you what did you bring out of that? What was your greatest spiritual strength that then you take into the local congregation? So if you do like the strengths finders assessment, yeah. I am at my top um strength is strategic. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So strategic, um, relator, learner, I think is one of them. Responsibility is one of the top five. Approaching ministry sort of with the question of where are we going? And I, I yeah, you need, and usually it's lots of conversations with the Lord. I'm like, okay, where are we going? Because if I don't have a clear picture of where God wants us to go, then I have trouble motivating myself to help motivate others to get us anywhere. Um, right. I'm, I'm not very good at sort of maintenance. I um, like sustaining. I've always been engaged like throughout ministry, even while I was in seminary, while I was in college, I was always involved in ministries that were starting. You know, the pastors I was working with would say, okay, go for it. (laughs) Start it up. And um, often what I found was I'd get something started and it would do much better once I handed it off to someone else. (laughs) Right. I, I wasn't, I'm not great at you know, sort of keeping the cart rolling down the street. Yes, you're much more apostle-like than yes. shepherd-like. Yeah. 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 So the apest apostle is by far the, the strongest for me. Prophet and shepherd are tied for second because um, I, I do care deeply about people in their formation. Um, but right. the apostle is sort of the driving, like that's the, where are we going? So even when I interviewed with this church, that was one, you know, they one of the things that came out in the interview by my work with InterVarsity being shaped by being the assistant pastor out on that island, you know, I, I knew enough about myself to know what I brought to the table. And so I was able right. to say in the interview to them, if you invite me to come and be your pastor, these are the kinds of questions I am going to be making us wrestle with because this is what right. I bring. And if you're looking for someone to just maintain or shepherd that's yeah. not me. And that wouldn't be exciting to me. And none of us would like me there in that role. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't make you happy. It wouldn't make me happy. And I don't think it would serve what God is hoping for. Um, and they were still willing to invite me to come. Um, <laughs> so they must have been willing to give it a try. We'll try yeah. something new. What's interesting is we're we're going through a um, a process right now and we've done the APES inventory with the board and some of the other leaders in our church. And I'm the only apostle <laughs> in the group. Whoa. But I was like, oh, it makes sense why why they wanted someone who could bring those kinds of questions. Because they weren't okay. questions they were asking naturally. I mean, wow, with your diverse between InterVarsity and Marshall Island and now being in Massachusetts, you've had several significant ministry experiences. Is there one that you would just share that, you know, impacted you in some way? I mean, I've talked, I've talked a little bit about how, how InterVarsity um, shaped me. 
while I was still in college, I had an opportunity to go um, through youth and mission on a missions trip. And we were um, placed, our team was placed in Slovenia two weeks after the missionary did to help him start the work of the Church of the Nazarene in Slovenia. <laughs> I was just going to say, so like there hadn't been much happening before. Then, there had right? been nothing with the yeah. Church of the Nazarene. There had been things with other ministries there. That I think that experience shaped how I do ministry because um, it it really taught me sort of a missionary mindset because there wasn't a church to do anything with. There wasn't already an established group of people to shepherd right. or disciple. And, you know, so we hit the ground and we spent time reading scripture every morning and praying every morning and then walking out the door and saying, okay, Lord, what do you have for us today? That was our ministry for the summer. That was our work was um, just listening to God's invitation for us in that space. And I remember leaving that summer to school and coming back to the States and thinking, like, wouldn't it be amazing if I could just live that way? Right. You know, I hadn't even started seminary, hadn't really even started the ordination process, but I think it was already sort of shaping the way that I do ministry now, you know, because I'm trying to help my congregation see themselves as missionaries. You know, they're there for a reason and they're there because God has something to do in them, in their discipleship there, but also through them that can't be reached, that I can't reach, but they can reach. Right. Them. Yeah. That's the idea of being domestic missionaries. I, re- I remember reading um, Michael Frost and, and Hirsch. Frost and Hirsch wrote The Shaping of Things yeah. to Come. That It's, it's a little bit older. Um, it's kind of heady, you know, because they get into a lot of the the theology behind the being missional but yeah that was that was life-changing for me in the sense of thinking of myself as a as a missionary here and probably would have yeah. planted a church if I hadn't read that book because it shaped it so same kind of thing for you if you hadn't had that missionary experience and then take that missional attitude into your ministry all right so you're a learner in your top five I have a learner in my top five too um what is God teaching you? What has he been teaching you lately? I, th- I think the thing that he's been working most deeply on in me lately, it comes out of Second um, Corinthians 12, um, where Paul's talking about the thorn in his side that he oh. asked Jesus to take away. And yeah. Jesus' response to him is, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. And that is, I think, the growing edge of my discipleship right now, because I, I'm a perfectionist. I am a deeply responsible person. Um, <laughs> I'm also a mom of two kids, and I'm trying to finish up my doctorate of ministry. You know, I solo pastoring this church with this beautiful old building that we don't always have the funds to fix that we need to fix. And, you know, people oh, that, that. Need to be, <laughs> people that need to be discipled and a community, you know, that we want to reach. And, and I also struggle with anxiety, you know, for a while I had sort of held on to the verse of perfect love drives out fear. And I was talking with my spiritual director and she's like, 
is that the verse that Jesus wants you to hold on to? <laughs> and as we sort of <laughs> as we sort of prayed about it, I realized that that holding on it, it, while that verse is true, holding on to that one was feeding into my perfectionism and feeding into my anxieties because I couldn't drive out the fear perfectly. And so then it caused me to question, does God love me? And am I Mm. worthy of love? And, and so she invited me just to sort of sit and ask God, what do you want to say to me? And this was the verse God brought to mind is my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so that has become my prayer in the times when I just feel like I'm not doing anything well. Um, but I'm my own worst critic, right? My husband thinks I'm doing right. well. My kids do. My church does. It, it's me. I'm the one that thinks I'm mm-hmm. not doing well. And, you know, and God's invitation is my strength. Yeah. Is, you know, my power, my power is perfect in your weakness. Not that you become perfect, but, but that God's power is perfectly able to work through me and that his grace is sufficient for what I need in this moment. You know, God's grace and his power is sufficient for that. Yeah. Um, That's the growing edge for me right now is just leaning into that and allowing that to be God's gift and God's truth and God's shape shaping for me. Yeah. I think those of us, you know, most people have an inner critic, but I think those of us with, with anxiety, we have an entire committee and they're constantly meeting to, uh, decide what we should be anxious about yeah so this you brought up a thing about spiritual directors i think it would be interesting for the people who are listening to talk a little bit about that like how did you find a spiritual director because this is different from a mentor really yes and then when you meet just what does that look like a little bit so i um i have had a spiritual director on and off but mostly on since i was in seminary I took a class awesome. on spiritual direction, on, on pastoral work as spiritual direction. Like how do we function as spiritual directors in the lives of our, of our um, parishioners, which was very helpful. But one of the things they required was that we try spiritual direction ourselves. You know, other than that class have no formal training in it. So I may be speaking incorrectly in, in the way that I talk about it. But the way that I think about it, a spiritual director is different than a mentor in that in a, in a mentor relationship, there's a little bit of give and take. There's a little bit right. of I share my experience or you ask your questions. We troubleshoot. We are attending to the work of God. We are trying to be intentional about development, your spiritual development, those sorts of things. But it's it's a little bit more of a give and take. In a spiritual director relationship, you know, I meet with my spiritual director for an hour once a month. The point of that hour is really for her. And I have had some male spiritual directors. I've had some women. Currently, my spiritual director is a woman. For her to come alongside of me and attend with me to what God is saying you know, whatever comes up in the beginning, the qu- almost always the question comes back to, well, what is God saying to you about that? Yeah. What is God's invitation in that? It's It's been a really helpful spiritual practice for me because she helps me to attend to my own discipleship and to my own soul. And often the things that I end up wrestling with and the things that God is working deeply in me are things that were sort of birthed out of this hour conversation. Yeah, so she just helps me to pay attention to the work of God in my life. 
So there's no, there's no give and take. There's no, like the goal is not to learn anything. It's to attend to God's work in my heart and to attend to God's work in my life to pay, you know, to give space to intentionally, intentionally pay attention. So I found spiritual directors. I think that was another question you asked. How did you find your spiritual director? Oh yeah. Um, A couple different ways because I've had a, a few different spiritual directors. My current spiritual director um, I've been working with her for five years now. I found her because, th- so here in the Boston area, there's a program called, I think it's called Sela, um, that trains oh. spiritual directors. Okay. And so she was someone who was actually my supervisor with InterVarsity. And I knew she was going through this training and I was no longer working for InterVarsity, but I needed a spiritual director. And so I said, right. would you be willing? But you can go to the website, people um, who have gone through their training, I mean, they're, they have a list of folks that are all over the country because they come in from all over to be trained. And some of them, like I meet with my spiritual director on Skype or like an online call. We don't meet in person because when we started meeting, I moved out of the country and I was just moving back into the area and she moved away. (laughs) We still meet. So we still meet on on the computer and that works fine for us. But before this, all of my experiences had been in-person spiritual direction. The um, retreat center where I go once a year for my prayer retreat, there's three couples that run it and the one lady is a spiritual director. And so she makes that available to whoever's there. So I did one session once. (laughs) I've always thought, I really need to find a spiritual director. I found it really helpful. And now, I mean... The woman who's currently my spiritual director has known me now for almost 10 years um, because she was my supervisor for a couple of years in InterVarsity. Having worked with her as a spiritual director for five years now, you know, she she can hear and remember the themes and she can say, well, I know that this has been an issue, you know, so she can bring things in from. um, So if you can find someone that you can meet with regularly it can become even more helpful over time as they get to know you and hear the themes in your life of what God is doing and where you're struggling and where the growing edges of your discipleship are. Growing edge. We should always be expanding, right? The kingdom of mm-hmm. God is like a mustard seed, <laughs> which means yeah. it expands. And so we should also be expanding. Mm-hmm. I spend so much of my time as pastors. We spend so much of our time investing in other people, having someone who's, like her entire job is in that hour is to invest in me, right? So right. That's, that's a huge gift. Isn't it? We pour out and we forget to then be filled back up, not just ourselves. I mean, yeah. you know, reading and praying and stuff fills us up, but sometimes you need somebody else to do it, pour yeah. into you. We've been uh, unfortunately trained in our culture to be, you know, as pastors are supposed to be in independent instead of be interdependent which is actually what the scriptures teach us well as we i always like to ask my guests on the podcast if you had someone sitting with you who a woman who has a call to ministry um and they're either wrestling with the call or they've already answered the call but they're in a place where they're questioning it again um what advice would you have for a woman in that situation? There's, there's two things that I usually share with people. And the first one 
is that that following or pursuing a call really just comes down to following or pursuing Jesus and listening yeah. for his invitation in your life and responding to that that invitation. I tend to try to make it a bigger thing. I'm a strategist, right? So I'm trying to think strategically about this call, but I don't think ministry works that way most of the time. Most of the time, we're not given the gift of an overview. We're only given the gift of sort of hindsight of, oh, that's why. The first is just follow Jesus. You know, Don't worry about having a clear path. Don't worry about having the answer to what you think you should do. And your path might, may not make any sense to anybody but God. But I'm also confident that whatever that path ends up looking like, God is going to redeem all of those points of your path for your discipleship and for his kingdom. As a person who wants a plan, I know how hard it is to hear it <laughs> and to live it. But right. as much as you're able to, just try to let go of the planning and listen for what's next. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's not to say you don't intentionally take steps and do things. You know, I was trained. I did my years of service. All of those things are important. Right. The, the other thing that I say that, that I think is important for people who are just starting to follow a call or considering following a call is that the things you struggle with as you're pursuing a call to ministry are the same things you're going to struggle with in ministry. Mm, yeah. So if you're struggling with time management, if you're struggling with burnout, if you're struggling with, you know, caring too much about other people's opinions, or if you're struggling with fear, that was always a big you know, fear and caring about other people's opinions were always a big part of, are still a big part of. But um, okay. one of the best pieces of advice I got from a mentor early on in ministry was, if it comes up while you're preparing for ministry, it's going to come up in ministry. So it needs to be part of your intentional discipleship. Oh, yeah, that's um, good. That is so true. And I think we maybe ignore it and think when we get there, it'll just work itself out. <laughs> exactly. It, it, <laughs> it won't. No. <laughs> It'll just be harder. <laughs> right. You know, starting to wrestle with God about it, starting to put in place what you need to put in place now is important um, because it won't yeah. go away. And it, it will either it will either become part of your discipleship or it will become part of what drives you out of ministry. Those are the, the things that have been most helpful for me. Well, that is great advice. <laughs> So what are you going to do today? What's your what's on your agenda for today? Today is um, making progress on a first draft of my first chapter for my doctorate of ministry. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and um, trying to connect and trying to connect with two uh, women in my church that are sick. Two pieces yeah. on my agenda for today. What's for your work. theme for your doctoral thesis? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. And then there's family, and that's a whole other. And then there's family, back. and then there's yeah. Oh, what's your theme for your doc, doctoral thesis? I'm in a cohort that's um, leadership in a changing church context through Gordon Conwell. Oh. I've been focusing on um, how we handle differences in the church. For my final thesis project, which is more of a case study project rather than a research project. I'm helping my church wrestle through um, the issues of identity and sharing, sharing space and sharing leadership with people who are different than we are. How Jesus invites us to give our power away and sends us vulnerably as guests in the world, which is how he came, 
you know, so how do we, you know, what do we need to deal with in our own sense of identity in order to fully engage that as a congregation? Well, that is definitely needed. I hope it causes ripple effects. There's nothing else, at least in your area. So, well, thank you. And hopefully, throughout the church. <laughs> <laughs>